Pray with me, please. Father, we are so thankful for the finished work of Jesus Christ. And Father, lest our hearts take that reality for granted and forget the cost of our redemption, help us this morning as we look at the ugliness of our sin. To remember again the brokenness and the desperation into which our rebellion has cast us so that we would look with new eyes upon the beauty of your mercy. So help us, Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear this morning as we turn now to your word. In Christ's name, amen. Turn in your copy of the Scriptures, please, to the book of Genesis chapter 3. The 17th century poet John Milton begins his famous epic poem, Paradise Lost, with the following stanza. Of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat. This morning in our text we arrive at the loss of Eden. Because of their rebellion, the man and the woman can no longer enjoy this place of fellowship with the holy God. They must leave the garden, and with it, they must leave the place of the immediate presence of the God they were created to worship. Until, as Milton says, one greater man restore us and regain that blissful seed. We have considered the last two weeks the anatomy of of sin, and now we begin to consider the outcome of sin. What are the consequences now of corruption? God, the judge of all of the earth, is now here in the garden. He is there with the newly rebellious, newly corrupted man and his wife. And so in our text, the judge of heaven and earth will now render his verdict of divine justice against their sin. And yet even in a moment like this, we will be surprised this morning to discover this truth, that in our darkest hour, God mingles justice with mercy and judgment with hope. With that in mind, observe with me the first predominant thought in our text, sin has lasting consequences. We are often tempted, I think, to treat our sin lightly. We're often not even willing to call sin by its right name. Refer to our sins as mistakes, or to as errors in judgment, or perhaps poor decisions that we have made. There are plenty of churches today who are surprisingly unwilling to call sin, sin. Maybe that shouldn't be surprising, because sin doesn't sell. No one likes to be called a sinner. No one likes to be called a rebel against God. And so if the objective is to get people in the door and people in the seats... Well, then the last thing that we would want to do is to call sin by its right name. But to diminish the nature of our offense is also to diminish its rightful consequence. We haven't merely made a mistake. We haven't simply had a lapse in good judgment. We have committed high-handed sins, high-handed offenses against the God 
of heaven and earth. And every one, each and every one of those sins that you and I commit on a daily, moment-by-moment basis, each one of them is worthy of death and eternal separation from the God who created us. So let's call a spade a spade, and let's call sin, sin, and let's do the difficult thing this morning of looking our sin in the face and understanding its horrible consequences. Consider with me three consequences, ongoing consequences for sin that the text identifies. Number one, the deceiver is himself cursed. Beginning in verse 13 of chapter 3, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. In the preceding verses, the woman has listened to the voice of the serpent. The man has listened to the voice of his wife, and seemingly no one has bothered to listen to God. But now all of creation will again listen to the voice of its creator who will reassert here his authority and prerogatives of his universal sovereignty, this time exercised in his right to bring judgment upon his creation. And the tempter himself will not escape. In fact, the first curse that God issues upon his creation is directed to the serpent. From here forward, this creature that we read before was created more crafty, more cunning than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now this same beast will be in a position more humble and servile than any other beast of the field that God had made. It will be from here forward a dust eater, meaning that its face will be perpetually down in the dirt and the grime where other creatures walk. The snake will therefore serve as a perpetual, visible reminder, a tangible object lesson to the man and his woman and all who will come after him, that Satan can never give what he promises. Satan can promise us and tempt us sin that offers to us pleasure, offers to us joy, offers to us exaltation, high position. But what does it actually produce? Brokenness, suffering. And always humiliation. Now we're going to return to verse 15 in just a few moments, but notice with me the second immediate consequence of sin. Relationships are corrupted. We said last week that sin destroys relationships. We saw that the immediate impulse of the man and the woman is to cover so that they are not able to look upon one another the way that they were before. They have something to conceal from one another, and not only from one another, but then they feel compelled to hide when God comes because they no longer want to stand in His presence. They can no longer bear to be seen by their God. So there is concealment and there is hiding on the vertical and on the horizontal relationships are corrupted. We saw how Adam blame-shifted and maligned both God and his wife in order to escape impending judgment. And God now identifies that these painful relational consequences will be ongoing. They will be the ongoing fruit of sin. He says in verse 16 to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. 
First, relationships to children are impacted. There will now be pain in childbearing. In order to be fruitful and to multiply as they were commanded to do, there will now be associated hardship and suffering. There will be pain in labor. The giving of new life will now come at the cost of agony to the mother. There will also be hardship in conception, hardship in pregnancy, perversion in sexuality, and there will be infertility, and there will be miscarriage. So that what formerly would have been a source of pleasure to the husband and wife will now be a source for them of joy, but a joy that is now to be mixed with heartache and with physical suffering. Some historians argue that the best historical data that we have suggests that before the intervention of modern medicine, the historical norm was around a 40 to 50 percent mortality rate for infants and young children throughout history. And even today, it is rare to find the family that has not been touched in some way by either infertility or miscarriage. Those are simply the problems that exist in having children. But as Adam and Eve will quickly discover, their brokenness will now also enter into the raising of children. In fact, some of the greatest pain that the heart of a parent can ever experience is the pain that comes when their child rejects them, rejects their beliefs, rejects their values, their faith, rejects their family. All of that and more is now in store for Adam, for Eve, for their children, for the whole human race. Second, the relationship also between husband and wife will now be corrupted. Your desire, God says, shall be contrary to your husband but he shall rule over you. He was created to lovingly lead. She was created to be his loving helpmeet, but now there will be a power struggle between the husband and wife. The word here for the wife's desire for her husband is actually the same phrase that is used in the next chapter when God warns Cain in chapter 4, verse 7. And if you do not do well, Cain, Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you. Same phrase. But you must rule over it. God warns Cain as he sees that Cain is teeming with anger toward his brother Abel. God warns Cain, sin is crouching at your door like a predator waiting for you to come out so that it can pounce upon you. And its desire is contrary to you. Its desire is not to give good things to you. Its desire is to have you, to possess you, to consume you, to dominate. Well, God says that the wife's desire will now be contrary to her husband. In other words, she will now be tempted to resist and chafe under his leadership. Her submission to his authority will no longer be as glad-hearted as it was formerly. Now there will be a desire to wrestle away the authority and the leadership and to subvert the created distinctions between man and woman and husband and wife and their roles and distinctions with one another. She will want to lead and usurp his spiritual authority. And on the flip side, God says, but he, the husband, will rule over you. And the implication here is that the husband will now, in his turn, try to lord his authority over his wife to dominate and to assert himself 
over his wife in a way that demonstrates little loving regard for her. So not only is her joyful submission to her husband compromised as a result of the fall, so also is his loving leadership of his wife compromised as a result of the fall. Moments ago, they were content with one another in their, in their mutual equality and in their unique roles and functions, but no longer. Now what God had established for them will no longer be enough. The ongoing consequence of their sin will be relational conflict. Brothers and sisters, why would we minimize the seriousness of our sin when we see everywhere around us its devastating effects? All of the pain and the heartache in our relationships, all the physical and emotional and spiritual suffering, all of the conflict, all of the anger, all of the resentment and bitterness, all of the betrayal and selfishness and destructive words and actions, all of what is broken in our relationships begins with the corruption that is in the world because of sin. So why would we go on loving what is destroying us and what is destroying those we love? Why would we go on feeding the sinful desires that are killing us and killing our relationships? The result of sin, relationships are corrupted, but the third lasting consequence of corruption is that creation itself will now be compromised. Verse 17, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God reserves his final words of judgment to the one who is most culpable, most responsible for what has happened here. Adam's failure to lead well and to protect the garden and protect his wife and protect creation from the serpent's deception will now have two ongoing lasting effects. First, Adam's failure means that he and those under his authority will suffer. We've already seen how his wife will suffer now in the production of children. All of human relationships will now experience conflict and brokenness. When he listened to Eve, when she tempted him to sin, it was the least loving thing that he could have done for her. His passivity was the least loving thing that he could have possibly done in relation to his wife. And as a result, he and all who will come after him will die. They will return to the dust from which he was fashioned. Adam imparts this new sin nature and its corresponding death penalty to all of his descendants. As we read in the book of Romans, as by one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. We have not only Adam's nature, but because we have his nature, you and I commit day by day, moment by moment, sins in the body, the just penalty of which is death. To the dust we shall return. But not only his wife and not only his children and not only the whole human race will suffer, but creation under his authority will suffer as well. Now thorns and thistles will grow out of the ground. 
remember, they fashion for themselves some kind of sewing equipment, probably a needle in order to sew the fig leaf garments that they would need to cover their nakedness. And now as a result of their sin, the ground will produce needles of its own. Objects that won't produce fruit, but that produce pain. Objects that reveal that the creation has now been subjected from fruitfulness to futility, as we read, because of the negligence of the man. So these thorns and these thistles will be the sign and the seal of the curse upon the physical world. But second, Adam's failure means not only that those under his authority will suffer, but that those under his authority will now resist him. Sin will continue its initial attack to subvert the created order. His wife will now resent his leadership. She will try to usurp him. We'll see very soon that his children will have no respect for him. And also, creation will no longer willingly yield itself to his hand. Just as his wife will now have to give birth in pain, so now he will have to work the ground in pain. The goodness of his work will now be met with hardship. It will be toil and laborious and difficult. His dominion over creation is no longer absolute. It will resist him. You know, we often wonder why there is so much pain and suffering in our world. Why there is unspeakable evil. Why do children die? Why is there chronic pain? Incurable disease. Why is there so much cancer? Why are there natural disasters that in a moment sweep away thousands of people with seemingly no warning? And we wonder, how could there be a good and a loving and an all-powerful God who would allow this to happen? Well, the Bible gives us the truth. We may not like it. We may wish that there was a different answer, but it is the truth. Our lives and our world are the way that they are because we chose rebellion rather than obedience. Because we chose the fruit that God promised would bring death, and it has. Because knowing the good, we desired the experience of the knowledge of evil. And we are now experiencing the knowledge of evil. And for good to be good, and for evil to be evil, and for the choice between what is good and what is evil to be a choice, there must be real and lasting consequences for choosing what is evil. And yet, and yet, we're in the words of Ephesians chapter 2, but God... And yet, because God is just, and because He is merciful, and because He is loving, and because He is all-powerful, the story does not end here. Which leads to the second major thought from our text this morning. In the middle of the curses, God provides a hope-filled promise. I said we would look again in a moment at Genesis 3.15. We're going to do so now because in the middle of cursing the serpent, God says to the deceiver, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
The book of Genesis has 50 chapters. Across those 50 chapters, there are 1,533 verses. I believe Genesis 3.15 is the most significant verse in all of the book of Genesis. And that is because Genesis 3.15 sets the agenda not only for the rest of the book of Genesis, but really it sets the agenda for the rest of redemptive history. Because in the middle of all that has gone wrong in creation, in the middle of all the ugliness of sin, in the middle of judgment and consequences and curses, God provides a hope-filled promise. Genesis 3.15 is, is frequently referred to as the Proto-Evangelium. That is the first announcement of the good news of the gospel. It is the first declaration that God has a redemptive plan to restore what sin has broken. That none of this has in fact caught God by surprise. None of this has taken God unawares. And it is profoundly good news in the middle of a horrifically very bad day. Notice with me four things about this promise. Number one, the man and the woman, they will die. They have already begun to die, but they will not die before they can give new life. The warning from God to the man and the woman back in Genesis chapter 2 was, for in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. So surely Satan imagines that the moment that Adam and Eve taste of that forbidden fruit, that he has succeeded in his murderous intention of destroying them. Game over. God said the day that they ate of it, they would surely die. Now remember, God is speaking here to the serpent. So imagine Satan's shock to discover that God is not going to strike these two dead on the spot. And not only are they not going to be immediately struck dead and annihilated, but in fact, they will get to have offspring. More image bearers are coming. This is not the end of humanity. This is just the beginning. Now, that raises a question that we need to answer. Has God gone back on his word? Is he here soft peddling the consequences for sin? Like some parents do when they issue a threat, their child disobeys, and then suddenly, oh, we've got to renegotiate the terms. Is that what's happening here? The answer to that is no. God is keeping his word, but in a way that the serpent and they perhaps did not expect. When God says, you will surely die, the phrase in Hebrew is actually, on the day you eat of it, dying, you will die. The verb to die is repeated twice for emphasis in the text. So most English translations, rather than repeating the verb twice, they simply say, surely die, which is appropriate, but it misses somewhat the nuance of what's happening in the text. The promise from God is not necessarily a promise of instant, immediate annihilation, but rather that they are, from the moment they eat of it, dying, and that they will die. And that is precisely what has happened. They have already begun dying. They've begun dying spiritually. That was evident from the moment that they began to hide from one another and hide from God. They have begun the process of spiritual death. But whether they realize it or not, they've also begun the process of physical death. Their bodies are now decaying. The clock on their mortality has started. 
They have tasted the first bite of death, but the rest is still to come. But it is coming. They will return to dust. But before they physically die, God intervenes and says, you will produce new life. You hear in this the words that Jesus will say later, because our God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. Second, notice with me that the man and the woman have not gone over entirely to the enemy's side. Satan has not succeeded either in immediately destroying humanity nor in winning over these image bearers into worshiping him completely. God says that he will put enmity between the serpent and the woman and between his offspring and her offspring. So while Satan has succeeded in getting the man and the woman to initially disobey God, they have not come over entirely to the serpent's side. The spiritual battle for the human heart is not over. It has not stopped here. It has only just begun. There will be resistance from humanity to the serpent because of the intervention of God. Notice here, who is the one who is putting the enmity? It is God. He is intervening on behalf of the man and the woman to ensure that they will not go over entirely to the side of the enemy. Observe third that there will be an ongoing battle within humanity between two seeds. God promises to put enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. There will be a division in humanity between those who will be in the line of promise and who will embrace the promises of God through faith and those who reject the seed of promise and who reveal themselves to be as the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman, the line of promise, will be initially realized in a family, the family of Abraham that will be traced through the rest of the book of Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament. And then those who come behind them who in faith believe in God and believe in the promises of God will be joined to this family as the people of God. As we read in Galatians that those are united to Abraham who are in faith. They have become part of his family. They are united to this family of promise. But the seed of the serpent, in contrast, will be the unbelieving world, all of unregenerate humankind, who will continue in rebellion against God and against His people, and most importantly, against His coming promised one. The seed of the serpent is not a physical, biological, genealogical line. Instead, the seed of the serpent will be those who oppose God, oppose His promised one, and who devote themselves to their rebellion by continuing to suppress and reject the truth in unrighteousness. They will be those of whom Jesus says, you are like your father, the devil, children of wrath, sons of disobedience. Now, we're going to look more at this in the coming weeks, even next week, because Moses and the biblical authors are going to take great pains to expose this ongoing battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, but we need to observe fourth that a promised man is coming who will defeat their enemy. The word that's used here for offspring is the Hebrew word zarah, which is probably better rendered seed. And this word is a collective singular, meaning that it is a word that can refer either to many things or to one thing, and you would use the same word. Here's, here's an example of what that means. If I say, bring to me the seed, I might be referring to a whole bag of seeds, or I might be referring to one seed, but I'd still say, bring me the seed. And you'd know what I was referring to by the context that we were in. That's a collective singular. It can be used for a collection of things, or for one thing, you use the same word. The meaning is determined by the context. And here the context reveals that this seed of the woman is not just referring to humanity in general, but to a particular seed. 
because it is joined to a third person singular pronoun, he. He will bruise or crush your head. There is a man promised who will come and who will crush the head of this serpent. And in this conflict between the serpent and this coming man, the serpent will strike at the heel of the man, but the man will strike at the head of the serpent. And the implication is this. A heel wound, we can survive that. But a head wound, well, a head wound is likely a mortal blow. The man is going to come. He is going to do battle with the serpent. And the man is going to win. And that, brothers and sisters, is profoundly good news in the garden under the forbidden tree. And it is even better news for those of us who know that the man has come and that the man has won. As we close this morning, I want to leave us then with a final thought from our passage. Our God is a God in whom justice and mercy meet. Verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And I think Adam here is demonstrating that he is trusting in the promises of God through faith. He is believing God when he says that they will have offspring and that there is a promised one to come. And so recognizing that in the curses of death that there is a hope for life, he names his wife in faith. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the end of the garden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It is the mercy of God that prevents the immediate annihilation of the man and the woman. In his mercy, he does not immediately destroy them. And in fact, in his mercy, he provides them, even in this moment of darkness, a path of hope. And it is the mercy of God that clothes them as they go out. They will not wander off into this dystopian and corrupted brave new world of theirs, wearing their makeshift and pathetic fig leaf garments, but instead God intervenes and provides a covering. And the suggestion here is these garments of skin is that likely we have the first animal sacrifice, the first suggestion in the Scriptures that one can die to cover the sin of someone else, but this will be a temporary covering. But the justice of God also demands in this moment that the relationship between God and man is now fundamentally changed. The man and his wife are driven away from the presence of God. God's holiness and their unrighteousness means that it is now unsafe for them to be in God's presence. And the justice of God therefore demands that they be expelled from this garden. The place of fellowship and access to God is cut off from them. And a cherubim with flaming sword is now placed at the entrance to this garden. It is as though the temple curtain that veils the holy of holies, access to the most holy place where God's presence is said to dwell, the the veil that, by the way, is embroidered with cherubim, it is as though this veil has now fallen between man and God and is barring their access to Eden. 
We have a Bible storybook for the kids called The Garden, The Curtain, and The Cross. And the line that gets repeated over and over in that book is, because of your sin, you can't come in. Because of their sin, they can no longer go in. And it is both the justice and the mercy of God that prevents their access from the tree of life. It's easy to understand the justice of God, but how is that the mercy of God? Well, they're about to be cut off from immediate fellowship with the God who made them, cast away from His presence. The presence of God that, as we read a few Sundays ago from David, in God's presence there is fullness of joy. The presence of God that they were meant to enjoy forever. They will be removed from the presence of God, and they will now experience life in a fallen world that will be filled with pain and suffering and sin and disease and evil. And God, in His justice, but also in His mercy, will not allow them to live forever in this way without a remedy. And so for a time, God bars their access to the tree of life, but He will not bar the way to the tree of life forever. Because this tree returns in the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation 21, and we will feast of the fruit of that tree forever. But before we can regain access to the tree of life and to God's presence, the seed of the woman, the promised seed to come, he must first go to the tree of death for us. And there at that tree, God's perfect justice and God's perfect mercy will again meet. And at that tree, the thorns and the thistles that the curse produced because of the failure of Adam to be the priest king that we needed. Those same thorns and thistles will be woven into a crown of thorns and placed on the head of Christ Jesus, who is the priest king who has come to redeem and restore and reclaim his fallen creation. With loss of Eden, till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seed. Because even in our darkest hour, God mingles justice with mercy and judgment with hope. Let's pray. Father, it is overwhelming for us to consider why you would offer your grace to us. But even in asking that question, Father, we acknowledge that grace is your unmerited favor toward us, that we don't deserve it. And so we are thankful that you are the God of grace and mercy and justice and truth who both condemns and judges sin, but who also provides its remedy in the person, in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so now as we prepare ourselves to gather around a table and to celebrate what Christ has done, Lord, break our hearts yet again so that we would see the ugliness of our sin, repent and turn from it, and cast ourselves upon the grace and mercy that is only offered to us through faith in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the blood of Christ. In his name, amen.